Hey y'all, welcome to Holy Coitus, a community of hosts, H-E-A-U-X. We are humans who engage in consensual coitus, are kind to ourselves and partners, creative, fully embodied, unapologetic, powerful, and free. My mission is to encourage everybody and everyone to claim or reclaim their sexual agency and voice, regardless of what parts you were born with or changed, where you live, what you did in the past, what you learned in the past, what you plan to do in the future, whether you've had zero sex partners or countless a week, your host story is welcome here. You are welcome here. Hey, hey, y'all. Welcome to my podcast, Holy Quitus. My name is Jenea, and I have such a great treat for you today. It's another host story. This one, though, like, I love all of my host stories and all of the fellow hoes that are on my podcast. This one makes a special um, milestone in my podcast because this one is officially international. Yay! Um, Aria Marafi will be sharing her story um, and it is absolutely incredible, just like each and every one of my guests are. So you can follow her at Aria Marafi and that is A-R-Y-A-M. M-A-R-A-F-I on Instagram and she talks about all kinds of brilliant things all the time. Also, follow my work at Holy Coitus and that's H-E-A-U-X-L-Y-C-O-I-T-U-S. Both of our links will be in the um, show notes and also on my Instagram page. Um, Please support um, each and every one of my guests. Um, Follow them, send them love, chat with them. They are super great Um, and I really do hope that you um, gain and grow from this conversation that I have with, um, Adiem. She is fantastic. All right, y'all chat later. Okay, everyone. Welcome to my podcast, Holy Coitus. My name is Jenea and I have a great guest who will be sharing her host story today and a little bit of, um, her, Soapbox is connected to sexual agency and voice. Um, welcome. Can you share with the people uh, what? who are you? What's your name? Where are you? What are you doing with your life? Um, hi, thank you for having me. My name is Erga Marafi. I'm Kuwaiti, um, but I live in London. I've lived here for nine years now in London. And I've just become an asylum seeker, unfortunately. Uh, So if all goes well, I'll be living here permanently. (laughs) Congratulations. I went to London a couple years ago before I moved to China and loved it. So I'm a little jealous of you right now with your current location because London is great. Um, So thank you for sharing your story with us today. Can you, I'm always curious about um, when people grew up. So what were some of the first messages you had regarding sex? And then also like who or what taught you what you knew, like the beginning parts of um, your knowledge base when it comes to sexuality? Yeah, so... um... Basically, because I come from, because I'm from Kuwait, so I come from a very Arab Muslim household, and um, the culture is, uh, because I come from a Muslim 
community. So the culture is very um, silent about sex. We don't really have great sexual education at all and in our countries and when you do get learn about sex education it's usually like you know like the last two years of school or something when like the kids are grown Mm. so it's not like um like i was shocked when i moved here because um i moved here when i was 11 years old and i was shocked because in school i thought it was too young to learn about sex education but now i've changed my mind because i've realized how necessary it is for kids to talk about the stuff and learn about the stuff so in my home um no one ever talked about sex at all it was like it didn't exist Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um and then um when i came home like from school in london um telling my parents my mother uh that they're going to do uh, they're going to do a sex education class in school. Um, my parents didn't let me attend the class because they were like, oh, it's sinful. We don't want you to learn these sinful things from Westerners. Mm-hmm. They don't understand our religion and stuff. And uh, basically, um, I've, what I found to be, in my experience, a pretty common mentality in our culture is that if you learn about something, like if you talk to kids about sex that's the equivalent of encouraging them or pressuring them to have sex Hmm. they they didn't see it as um this is just biology or explaining um how healthy relationships look like to kids basically Mm-hmm. Which, you know, I think is really important because um, a few times I've spoken about uh, on my page on Instagram um, misconceptions about um, sexual health. And I did a presentation at uni as well. I'm a medical student. I did a presentation about women's sexual health. And um, because my target audience is mostly Arab. Um, similar background to me, so Gulf Arabs, um, a lot of what would seem like basic um, stuff you learn in sex ed when you're a teenager, a lot of that stuff, when I when you talk about it within our cultures, it's, um, it's taken the wrong way because they're scared of encouraging kids to go out and have sex. Um, so I'm Muslim, so um, I believe in sex after marriage. But the difference is that I feel like in our community, they only talk about, um, they, they don't teach kids about what sex is. They mm. And then when you're married, it's just like, oh yeah, since you're getting married, let me just explain what sex is mm-hmm. so that you can have fun on your wedding night with your husband. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really dangerous to women in our community because um, women in our community go into marriages uh, not understanding what healthy relationships look like, healthy sexual relationships look like, and it puts them at risk of um, uh, being taken advantage of um, sexual assault. Uh, marital rape is not a crime in Kuwait, where I'm from. Mm. Um, so it's 
that's why it's important, you know, to talk about this stuff. So I only started realizing these things recently because, um, you know, in my household, we never spoke about this stuff. It was all, um, it's a very taboo topic. <laughs> it's seen mm. as very inappropriate and shameful if anyone speaks about these things. Mm. Interesting. So, um, can you speak a little bit about, like, um, what happens with sexual education in your community after marriage? So, like, you mentioned that, like, no one talks about it beforehand, usually. And then after you get married, you're supposed to just have sex and that's it. So, like... And you're just supposed to know what you're... So- yeah, exactly. So, um, I mean, because I've been living here for so long, so I've been told these stories by friends back home in Kuwait. Mm-hmm. And they're telling me these, what I found to be really scary, horrific stories of people that I know getting married mm-hmm. and they they don't learn about sex. There's no sex education their whole lives. And then once they get engaged, they're going to get married in a week. And then their aunties bring them to the side and explain what sex is. Mm. So exactly yeah it's scary it's scary so that's their um their first um like formal introduction to what sex is because before that um you'll see like um you will be introduced to sex scenes in the media uh movies uh anything online so you'll see these scenes that you won't understand because no one in our community is talking about it. And then suddenly, right before you get married, you're like, oh, by the way, uh, as a wife, these are your duties, your sexual duties to your husband, and this is how you please your husband. And there's there's no um, conversation about um, a woman's pleasure during sex. It's always focused on the men's pleasure mm-hmm. and um so a lot of women who again have spoken to me about this from kuwait um i think it's pretty much the same across the um, gulf arab region but i'm only going to speak for kuwait because mm-hmm. The people who told me this are Kuwaiti. Mm. That um, they there was no education on consent ever. Really. So when you learn, like a week before you get married, and your aunties pull you on the side and explain what sex is, and you're just supposed to like know how to do everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they never talk about consent. It's always, mm. you know, this is something you have to do because men have needs. Mm. So you have to fulfill your husband's needs. And Mm. as a wife, you're expected to do that. Otherwise, you're a horrible wife and the community will shame you. And if he divorces you or cheats on you, it's your fault because you didn't, um, you know, satisfy his sexual needs. So um, it's a heavy burden to place on women who want to get married. So... um, my friend was telling me um, that someone we know who was getting married when um, before her wedding night, like uh, the women were celebrating together, kind of like a bachelorette party thing. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, she was telling me that the women were sharing stories about how their husbands couldn't control themselves around them. And they just had sex with them even when they didn't want to. Wow. Which when I heard that, I was like, their husbands are rapists. Mm-hmm. But because there's no education or understanding about consent, to them it was just funny. Like, oh, imagine saying no to your husband. Ha, ha, ha. My husband would never let me say no to him. If he wants to have sex, I have to have sex. And it's 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 scary. It's scary to think about that this is how we're raising um, women in our community to accept that um, our bodies are... Um, vessels for men's sexual pleasure mm-hmm. and i think it definitely enables sexual violence in our communities because marital rape is still not criminalized it's still not recognized as rape it's still legal and there, no one talks to women about sex until like just before they get married it's thrown at them that this is what you have to do uh, after you get married and um, it's it's scary mm-hmm. to think that women are going to marriages not knowing what to expect. And they're going to be pressured to do things that they, they don't understand because they haven't received adequate sex education. And they either don't feel comfortable doing it or they're not ready to do it, but they can't they can't say no because in their minds, you know, it's my husband, I have to. Mm-hmm. So it's scary to put that pressure on women in our communities. I have so many follow-up questions. Okay, first question, <laughs> who is teaching the men about sex? And then I want to go back into the women um, and then we'll continue with your mm-hmm. story. Um, so what are they teaching men about sex in your in your culture and in your communities? Because, like, you know, there are two sides to a sexual relationship. So you talked about, like, the women being almost victims mm-hmm. and um, receiving all of this um, attention and, um, and not having the agency. What are they, what are they teaching men and what are, what are men's thoughts about this right now? Um, I don't think I can speak for men because I'm not a guy. Okay. So I haven't experienced that. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I'm not sure because, um, like, I remember when um, when I started asking my parents permission, they had to sign a permission slip for me to go attend sex education classes at school. Um, I remember my parents being confused and they're like, "What's the point of sex education? We never learned about this stuff." Oh, so, got it. Uh, so there, I know that there's no like formal education about it. I mean, in their generation, there wasn't any education about it. It's just like your parents told you about it just before you get married. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But now, um, I know they're starting to um, implement sex education in schools, like I said, the older years. But again, it's really um, inadequate Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. there's there's no education about consent. Wow. It's um, the piece about... um the don't have sex until you get married part and then you're supposed to be like a sex rock star as soon as you 
have a wedding ceremony is very similar between your culture and community and the one that I grew up in. Um, Mm. And there is a lot of um, just cognitive dissonance and then also just complete terror when it comes to um especially for yeah. women because like sex is it's um it's very scary and it's it's just a lot like it's not just watching a movie like it's it's a lot of it's 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 intense experience exactly exactly yeah, yeah. so um and again because um like i remember when i was doing my research for the sexual health presentation i gave at a uh, university um like uh, a lot of young people, um, because they're not receiving adequate sex education, resort to pornography. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's not realistic or healthy. Mm-hmm. It, um, it's not, it doesn't show, it doesn't represent healthy or realistic expectations from relationships or sexual interactions. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's not real life. It's acting. It's... Um, you know, staged, prepared, scripted. So um, when people rely on stuff like porn for education, mm-hmm. they, they don't have an, uh, an alternative. No one's going to teach them about it at school. Mm-hmm. There's no formal education about it because it's seen as inappropriate. So um, they end up picking really toxic messages. Um, I forgot the statistic. Um, I remember there was a study about um, that found a correlation between male violence against women and porn, Mm. Uh, increased consumption of porn. Because again, it's catered to the male gaze. It's focused on uh, men's pleasure. Mm -hmm. That's again, slowly changing in the industry. but still, it's it's not it doesn't provide healthy or realistic expectations about sex. So, so you're not teaching kids about it in school. They're going on the internet and learning things that are untrue and unrealistic. And then um, you bring in the religious aspect of it, which mm-hmm. shames anyone who tries to ask questions. Like, how dare you ask this question? Mm -hmm. This is sinful. Um, You're dirty. Why uh, why are you thinking about these things? Mm -hmm. Even though, you know, like, um, there's nothing wrong with learning. It doesn't mean you're a horrible person for Mm -hmm. asking questions and learning. I don't see anything wrong with that. And someone, a a kid being curious doesn't mean that, um, like, talking to kids about sex in a healthy age appropriate way doesn't mean that they're gonna like run out and have sex it's the opposite countries Mm -hmm. with the best sex education like norway they have a really good open um sex education programs and they have uh some of the lowest teen pregnancy rates in the world Mm -hmm. and um so we know that talking to kids about sex isn't going to um encourage them to have sex it's just um it just it it just satisfies their curiosity because um it's something natural and biological and people should learn about it yeah it doesn't mean you're encouraging people to sin (laughs) (laughs) absolutely it's so true and i think um 
Um, I grew up in a very um, sexually conservative community, um, religious community. And also I grew up in the South where people got married very early, uh, 19-ish, 20-ish. And now I live in China, which is extremely sexually repressed. And I, I just had a conversation a couple days, a couple weeks ago with some kids. And they were like, teacher, we have a question. And I was like, whatever you want to know, I'll answer it. And they were like, uh, is porn real? And I said, absolutely <laughs> not. And they were shocked. Really? It's not? And I was like, and, and if you learn anything, I'm supposed to be teaching them English. And they were like, we want to talk about pornography. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, keep your voice down, first of all. And I was like, if you want, to, if you learn anything in this English class right now, is not real. And, and um, they were like, disappointed they were like but it looks so real i was like i know it's a movie <laughs> do not ask your girlfriends to do this because it's not it's not actual relationship anything so hopefully they kept the message and they don't make their whoever they're going to experience this with pretend that they're porn star mm. but yes it's not no but see i mean that's my point exactly it's dangerous to it is so dangerous the only mm. source of information they have is porn that's dangerous it's not realistic it's not healthy and i remember reading um everyday sexism by laura bates she's one of my favorite authors have you heard of her no but i'm going to write it down because that looks sounds great yeah um, British feminist author Laura Bates. She's incredible. So uh, she started this research project where she started collecting testimonies online. The website's still up and people anonymously add their testimonies of experiencing sexual harassment or abuse. Hmm. So um, in the testimonies, oh, and for her book, she also like visited schools and talked to young girls about um, issues relating to sexual harassment. So she learned that um, in her research, she was talking about um, like young children who are crying, like 12-year-old girls, 13-year-old girls, who are crying because they're watching porn and they think, you know, like, um, because there is violence against women in porn, mm-hmm. um, like um, kinky stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, consensually, there's no problem with that if both parties consent. But they're not going to show you people consenting mm-hmm. to these actions in porn. Because, mm-hmm. again, it's acting. It's not real. They're not going to show you people consenting. So... The, the young girls were watching this stuff and crying because they were scared and thought that this is what sex looked like in real life and they were afraid of sex. Mm-hmm. Or like um, I had a friend of mine in Kuwait who um, we were young and uh, she, she called me as she was crying and she told me that her parents told her that when she gets married, she has to, uh, she can't deny her husband's sex, she can't say no to him, she can't refuse, because he's her husband, and basically she owes him. Mm. Because again, women are seen in, in, because of patriarchy, women are seen as property. We're not seen as um, people who have, you know, autonomy over our bodies, and um, our choices about our body should be respected. That's not valued 
in our societies, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And I read another book actually by Adam Kay. Um, what was it called? It was such a brilliant book. I forgot what it was called. It's amazing. <laughs> I forgot the name. Anyway, sorry. No so problem. I read another book by this author, Adam Kay. Uh, he was a gynecologist and he spoke about um, when he was doing, uh, while he was working as a gynecologist, he said that there were cases of young girls. He had a patient who was 14 years old, I think it was, and she had actually cut her labia because mm. she wanted to look like the girls in porn. Mm. Because she said, my body doesn't look like that. Mm. And obviously porn isn't realistic, but to a young girl who has no um, understanding of what normal body should look like, realistic, doesn't have an understanding of realistic body images and watches porn and she wants to look like the woman in porn, mm. she, she started cutting herself to like her cutting her um, vulva to match what she was observing in porn. Mm. And that that's scary. That's so scary to me that children are doing this to themselves because we're not teaching them about um, healthy body image, uh, healthy relationships, healthy sex. Oh, so terrifying. That's yes. Um, within your community, um, are there people doing the work of sexual education now? So, or are there, yeah, like, are there people like you who are like, this has to stop, I'll do it, I'll teach you guys, or, (laughs) (laughs) um, in Kuwait, um, I'm not really sure. I haven't seen it. I know there are pages, like Arab pages, um, Arabic pages in Arabic on Instagram with Arab content creators who talk about sex education. But they're um, they're usually anonymous. They mm. don't associate their names because, again, stigma and of course there's going to be slut-shaming associated with it, even mm. though it's just educational. Um mm unfortunately (laughs) right oh my goodness so okay let's transition now into your journey of um becoming a as as we grow in in sexual agency you talked about how your growing up there was a lot of abuse and so can you share about like what your upbringing was like and some of the messages that you um learned about yourself and your body as 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 you um as you were maturing yeah uh definitely so um i grew up with a very abusive family um i experienced you know all kinds of abuse uh my father was sexually abusing me so um, I, it, it wasn't a secret. Uh, everyone within the household knew that he was sexually abusing me. He was doing it in front of them, but no one stepped in to help me or stop him or whatever. Mm-hmm. So um, my mother actually one time said that it was my fault 
Mm. And uh, I remember one time, it really stuck with me. She said that I was dirty. Mm. And, um, you know, she would always... um, She'd always have these make these horrible assumptions about me. Like if I went to the bookstore, um, I'm a big bookworm. I love reading. So if I go to the bookstore on the weekends, um, she apparently was talking, like gossiping to the rest of my family behind my back that the only reason I'm going to the bookstore is to meet up with men. Mm-hmm. And um, she had all these... Um, I don't know how to say it respectfully. Like, I think the word I want to use is delusions. Mm -hmm. I want to keep it factual. I don't really want to insult her, but these are delusions. I mean, um, like one time I was a kid, I was building a snowman in the park. Um, We don't get a lot of snow in central London. I was excited. (laughs) So I was building a snowman with my sister and my father started shouting at us randomly. And he was like, you know, the only reason you're building a snowman is because you want some random guy 30 meters away in the park to look at you and you want the, the guy's attention, whatever. Huh? And um, and then he was like screaming and swearing and stuff. So I was like, oh, can I go home? Because I don't want to listen to this. Then my mother was like, no, don't let her go home. She only wants to go home so that the guy would follow her home. And hmm. it's all these um, really like strange conspiracy theories about me. And it's like, I was constantly receiving the message that I had bad, within quotes, sexual intentions. And Mm. I always, I constantly, my intentions were always to seduce men and I was dirty. And um, so I feel like I grew up with that message a lot. Mm. And... um, Obviously, it's upsetting as a kid when that's what your parents think of you. Of course. Um, Yeah. uh, And combined with the sexual abuse, it made me feel like, you know, it's my fault I'm being sexually abused because they're saying that I'm dirty and, you know, that um, I have all these sexual intentions with men, so Mm. I must be doing something wrong to deserve the sexual abuse, basically. Mm. Um, When, thankfully, when I was 17, I had saved up enough money to leave home, and I had received a scholarship to study medicine at university, so I just packed my stuff up, and I ran away from home. Mm. And... um, yeah, uh, I'm 21 now. Um, things have been difficult because um, they were stalking me and threatening me and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, they didn't really leave me alone after I left. But it's just, um, it definitely... Oh, and that's why I had to apply for asylum, by the way, just to make it clear. Yeah. Uh, that's why I've applied for asylum here, because um, in Kuwait, there are no laws to protect me from my family. And we have the male guardianship system. So basically, I can't make any decisions about my life as a woman without a male guardian's approval. And my male guardian, because I'm an unmarried woman, is my father. Mm-hmm. And my father's a sexual predator who was sexually abusing me. So it doesn't really work out well. Right. It's just the system doesn't protect women. So that's why I applied for asylum here. 
Mm-hmm. And so um, growing up with all of this, obviously, it, I had a really uh, bad relationship with my body. And um, I'm still obviously trying to accept my body and everything, but mm-hmm. I have improved so much compared to like when I was 14 or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, thankfully, I've improved a lot. So um, I think one of the biggest things is um, with my PTSD, uh, one of the um, symptoms I struggle with the most is um, dissociation. So it's um, feeling physically disconnected and detached from my body or um, from my environment. So it's difficult because, um, you know, sometimes I can't control it. I'm in a public place. Uh, a friend tapped me on the shoulder. It was really innocent, and I completely dissociated. I got so scared. Someone's violating me. Someone's touching me, and it's like um, it's a dissociation is a protective mechanism. So, for my body to protect itself from the threat of someone violating me, it's like I leave my body, mm-hmm. and it's scary because I. I can't connect with my body again, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that's definitely been one of the biggest challenges is trying to reconnect with my body and build a healthier relationship with it. Because I I spent so much time, you know, hating my body and internalizing the messages that, you know, I'm dirty and I deserve to be sexually abused and, you know, I'm unclean because I was sexually abused and all of these messages, um, you know, making me feel like I've done something wrong, even though logically I know I haven't done anything wrong, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so when my body reacts in this way and I disconnect from my body, I dissociate it's difficult to find a way to feel physically connected to my body, but also emotionally connected. As in, I value my body, I respect my body. Mm. So that's that's been a big challenge. And um, I think um, from what I've seen, Uh, with other survivors of sexual abuse that they've shared uh, similar experiences of trying to reconnect with their bodies. Um, Because when you're so used to your body being violated by other people, it doesn't feel like it belongs to you anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the ways actually I reclaimed my body and felt like um, I was finally making my own decisions about my bodies when I started wearing the hijab. Mm. Um, I only started wearing it um, last year. It's been just over a year now. Um, I didn't want to wear it before last year because um, I was worried with my, um, my relationship with my body. I was worried if I make a big adjustment to my appearance, Uh, Maybe I was doing it for the wrong reasons or maybe I would resent it later on and I didn't want uh, something that's um, 
spiritually significant to me. I didn't want to resent it. So um, I waited until um, my dissociative symptoms have um, are almost non-existent now. So once I noticed that change and I haven't been dissociating frequently, I decided that, you know, I can, I finally feel connected to my body. I want to make my own decisions about my body. And um, um, the idea of modesty is so important to me uh, because it's ingrained in not just my faith, it it just makes me feel comfortable (laughs) to dress that way, to dress modestly. So that was a big step in my journey to um, reclaiming my body and sexual agency is when I decided to um, wear hijab and um, it gives me the power to decide who I want to see, to share my body with, I guess, Mm -hmm. to put it into better words. Does that make sense? I absolutely love it. Yes. Yeah. I'm curious. um, I've, I've wanted to ask this to someone for a while, um, an older hijab wearer. I don't know officially like the terms, but like someone oh, who, hijabi. Hijabi. Yeah. So like, um, so someone who, who dons the hijab as an older person, because most of the times, um, women are much younger and then like their agency with using or cho- or wearing it is from parents and then they kind of they go with it but you're an older one so can you share um what folks usually do and then your journey when it comes to being a hijabi yeah um i think at least in kuwait it it differs between different communities Mm -hmm. uh, within the Muslim population, it differs between individual communities and families. Um, in my family, on my mother's side, um, a lot of women on my mother's side don't wear the hijab at all. A lot of them uh, don't wear it until they're, you know, in their 40s, like much older. Mm-hmm. And um, like my mom only started wearing it when uh, I think she was, she was somewhere in her 30s. Like I remember, like she wasn't wearing it, and then one day she started wearing it, and I was confused. I was like, "What happened?" <laughs> and um, I because I was a kid, I didn't understand, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, so in my family, it's um, it's actually uncommon to wear it when you're younger. Mm. But I know that in a lot of families, it is common for people to wear it when they're much younger. And I have mixed feelings about that because, um, obviously, I believe. So just because I wear the hijab doesn't mean I believe that everyone has to wear it or that um, people who don't wear it are bad people or whatever. It's just Mm -hmm. I felt like it was the right decision for me and um, it it just made sense to me. It doesn't mean I'm going to force my beliefs or on other people because um, the entire point is it was my choice to wear it. Uh, No one has the right to take away to take that choice away from me, mm-hmm. like the French government is trying to do among True. other European governments. <laughs> and um, yes. so that's why I have mixed feelings when I see like really young girls wearing the hijab, because I think um, 
like I know I know young girls who um, they would tell me they were like their parents. Um, so I knew this girl. She started wearing it when she was really young. Um, I think when she was twelve or something, mm-hmm. and I was really surprised by it. But um, her mother doesn't wear it. Her mm-hmm. parents didn't want her to wear it, and she just wanted to wear it. Like she just felt it was right, and her parents were like, "Oh, you don't have to." And she was just like, "No, I want to wear it." So, <laughs> so I feel like I mean, if she wants to, and that's her choice, I feel like um, people's choices about what they wear should definitely be respected. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I would be careful with what we teach young people, like what we teach our children and to avoid pressuring them into um, doing things that might not be right for them. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. like, um, like in my family, like I said, in my mom's family, it was really common for, it's really common for women not to wear the hijab at all. On my dad's side, um women do wear the hijab when they are when they're older mm-hmm. but they like everyone wears it still mm-hmm. <laughs> my dad's family is much more religious than my mom's family mm. so um i feel like uh in the family i grew up in the idea of someone not wearing a hijab would have been um subject to shame and judgment Mm. because it's um because again it's it's never about what the person what the woman wants to wear it's always about um who gets to control what she wears right. so um when i decided to wear it mm-hmm. um i actually received um a lot of discouragement from the Muslim community, like my Muslim friends, telling me not to wear the hijab because they were telling me that, you know, um, I'm going to be a target for hate crimes. Mm. And, you know, which is true. Um, but still, it, it was my choice. I didn't want anyone to take that choice away from me. Mm. And at the same time, there's also the non-Muslim community. So, um I'm living in London, so the Western community um, kind of um, like I've noticed a sense of entitlement. Like, how dare you cover your body? What if I want to see your hair? But like, why do I have to show you my hair just because you want to see it? You know, like it's <laughs> it doesn't make sense. <laughs> like, why are you entitled to my body? Mm-hmm. It's um, so I've noticed. Um, I've seen it on both sides. So I, I still do get people telling me that I'm not covered enough and I'm not wearing it properly and I should be more covered even though I'm very comfortable with how I dress. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, I get people telling me to take it off and whatever. So I feel like um, people are so eager to make decisions for women, especially about what they should and shouldn't do with their bodies instead of asking women what would you like to do with your body? It would be so simple if you just ask a woman, what do you want? It, it like, exactly, yeah, I so agree, simple. I agree. So simple. <laughs> so simple. Fascinating. Okay, my other question I've wanted to ask an older hijabi wear is, um, or older hijabi is, um, what did it feel like, like the very first day 
that you wore it like how did your body respond like what was in your mind and yeah do you do you remember this day or what your thoughts yeah were? I remember because this? it was um during the lockdown <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't have a place to wear it because I was in a lockdown I wasn't going out mm. so I just wore it to take out the trash and I was excited then I went back home and I texted my friends I was like I just wore a hijab to take out the trash oh <laughs> <laughs> I remember being um, like really excited about it. Yes. <laughs> um, and um, I remember again, like um, I think one of the biggest parts about wearing the hijab for me is that um, being Muslim is such a big part of my identity. Mm. And I like being able to show that to people that I'm a Muslim woman. So um, even if people don't know me and I'm a complete stranger, when people see me wearing a hijab, um, it shows that I identify as Muslim. Mm -hmm. um, and I like that because, like I said, being Muslim is so important to me. It's, it's such a big part of who I am. Mm -hmm. Or like um, if I go out in public and there are um, Muslims like... Um, walking past me or something, or even people asking for directions, they're more willing to come up to me because um, I'm more obviously Muslim now that I'm wearing a hijab. Hmm. So they're more likely to feel comfortable with me and come up to me and um, ask me for directions or um, just um, say, assalamu alaikum, you know, peace be upon you. Hmm. So it's, it's just nice to... Um, feel more like I belong in the Muslim community, I guess. So it's nice. But again, at the same time, there is a toxic element to it because people assume that... Um, I've noticed this on Instagram when I started talking about my experiences with sexual abuse. And people started commenting strange things that I must be telling the truth because I'm wearing a hijab. So it's like, apparently that means I can't lie about being sexually abused. Well, so it's like, hmm. I don't know how to respond <laughs> because like, thank you for believing me. But at the same time, the way I dress should have nothing to do with whether or not you believe me. And yes. yeah, it's toxic because um, it feeds into the idea that um, if a woman is wearing revealing clothes, she deserves to be sexually abused or she's mm. asking for it. And um she's lying about it because she's um it, it's slut shaming basically yes. <laughs> so when people see me covered or dressing modestly they think um that makes me a better person than someone who isn't covered mm -hmm. who isn't wearing a hijab and i think that's um horrible <laughs> because i don't think the way i dress means that i'm a better person than someone else right i, I don't want to be used as um a standard to compare other women to or to degrade women like oh uh, why are you revealing your body? Look at this woman. She's more respectable. She's covered. Why aren't you like that? I, mm -hmm. I'm scared of being used as that example. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. 
it's almost like in every culture, women just can't win. And it's so depressing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All you want to do is live. And people and systems and society are keeping us from like letting us do simple things. It's infuriating. <laughs> Yes. Exactly. No, because we we can't win. Because like I said to some people, I'm not covered enough. I'm not dressed modestly enough. But to other people, it makes them so angry that um, they can't see more of my body. So it's um, I can't win either way. So I might as well do what I want. Do what you want. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Um, That's so exciting. Thank you very much for sharing. Um, okay, so <laughs> you do identify with um, the LGBT community um, in some yeah. capacity, which I think is fantastic. I think everyone should identify somewhere within LGBT, like because it just is people's sexual identity, and it, everybody should. I don't know. Anyway, so can you talk about? Um, your journey in identifying in the way that you do um, and then some of your thoughts behind behind yeah. your your um, yeah. your term or yes okay um, so I'm asexual um, I realized this after I left home and I started university uh, while I was living with my family, because like I said, they're super, conser- I wouldn't call them religious. I would say they're conservative and they manipulate religion based on what they're trying to achieve. Hmm. So because they're super conservative. So um, the idea of a person being able to experience sexual attraction was just never spoken about Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i didn't realize that people were out here experiencing sexual attraction because i wasn't experiencing it Mm. but i didn't know it was a thing because no one was talking about it (laughs) (laughs) so so i just i never realized that you know like i was different or something and um because my parents never talked about um I mean, my mother never talked about um, seeing other men as attractive. She never once said that a guy was attractive, unless it was my dad. Hmm. She never uh, once talked about um, anyone she might have had a crush on or anything like that. So it's like... Mm it's like those things were just non-existent and then she just met my dad and everything fell into place mm. for my mother. So, um, so I just kind of thought, you know, that I, I didn't realize that sexual attraction was a thing mm-hmm. <laughs> basically. And, um, when people at school started getting crushes and talking about boys and stuff, I just thought, you know, like, um, because I mean, this is, the culture I was raised into so I just believed oh you know it's just these westerners they're just like obsessed with sex and (laughs) because that's like the cultural like in our culture that's what we learn about these western countries it's like (laughs) oh my god all these western countries everyone there is obsessed with sex I just Mm -hmm. I I internalized that really deeply and I thought you know the only reason these girls in my school are 
feeling attracted to other guys is because they're obsessed with sex mm -hmm. <laughs> basically mm -hmm. i didn't re uh, or maybe because you know i'm religious so i'm i'm not experiencing sexual attraction as if like i i could choose that obviously it's not <laughs> a choice Fair. like you know mm -hmm. so i i didn't realize that there was something you know like different about me until um when I went into university, because then I started making a lot of Arab and Muslim friends. And um, I realized, you know, they were also having crushes on guys and they were also um, experiencing sexual attraction towards many people. And I just wasn't mm. <laughs> experiencing that. So it was just, um, it was really confusing to try to figure it out. Um, I remember when I was trying to um, understand my sexuality, I, 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 I believed I was bisexual. And I told my best friend, I was like, oh my God, I'm bisexual. Mm. And, um, and then I realized, you know, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> because <laughs> in my mind, the reason I was bisexual, the reason I believed I was bisexual is because I, I don't experience attraction towards women or men. Mm. So 0% attraction, but it's equal. They're both equally at 0%. So I must be bisexual. It's flawless logic. You know, I didn't realize, <laughs> I didn't realize asexuality was a thing. And mm -hmm. then I started reading up on asexuality and I was like, oh my God, this is me. <laughs> and everything made <laughs> So then um, I, you know, started, um, because everything's on Instagram. So I started mm -hmm. following like all these asexual pages on Instagram. And it's so nice to talk to people who, um, who won't assume that I'm flirting with them or pursuing them sexually just because I'm interested in being their friend. <laughs> <laughs> yes. How does, how does, um, can you share more about a bit about that with the um I just want to be your friend like I don't want to sleep with you like can we just talk about like what is that <laughs> like because um I know in my my experience um I grew up in very conservative culture and so I didn't have any idea how to talk with regular people and I was like I just want to talk to you about fun things and people are like you want to have sex? I was like, no, I asked about your favorite movie. Like that doesn't mean we have sex. Like, I don't understand. I, I had no idea. Or I would like accidentally. Very relatable. Yeah. And I would Very like, accident yeah, I would like accidentally flirt with people. I was like, no, I was being friendly. Like, I don't understand. And so I had to learn. I was like, oh, you're not supposed to touch on the shoulder like this because that means sex. And then it's the other shoulder. And I was like, okay, I can do other shoulder, but not this one. And then you're not supposed to wink and you're not supposed to smile with one side of your, I was so confused, so confused. <laughs> so I had to learn all of this. <laughs> no, sorry, so I keep going. Yeah, and so um, I'm not asexual, but I I was completely clueless and still kind of am when it comes to like flirt, <laughs> talking to people. I'm so lost. And so um, can you share a bit about like what that journey has been like with um, as you develop non-sexual relationships mm -hmm. and what does it look like with intimacy and like with relationship building as an asexual person? Um, 
I mean, currently, I'm not interested in pursuing anything. That's great. <laughs> so, um, like, I'm literally just looking to be friends with you if I'm talking to you, nothing more. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I realized that because we live in a society where most people are allosexual, which is the opposite of asexual. So, most people do experience sexual attraction. So, I realized that, especially if I'm talking to someone, of the opposite sex, I'll have to make it really clear that like, I'm only interested in being friends, just mm. to make it clear mm. <laughs> that no one thinks I have other intentions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because, um, uh, because obviously, like, it's difficult, because I, I don't understand, I'm still trying to understand how people can experience sexual attraction towards mm -hmm. other people it just doesn't make sense to me i'm still trying to understand that concept mm -hmm. so it just um i, I feel like i'm cool. constantly worried that mm -hmm. by being friendly i might be like by being friendly towards someone they might interpret that as me leading them on or something right so i'm it feels like i'm constantly um walking on eggshells just trying to make sure that no one misinterprets it so i'm very open now and i tell people i'm asexual just in case so no one gets the wrong idea but even even then some people um even when i explain what it because it's it's not very common a lot of people don't understand what asexuality means mm -hmm. it, it just means the lack of sexual attraction so even when i do explain the meaning to some people I still get, um, let's call them interesting reactions. Um, <laughs> like I remember one time, um, this guy was like, oh, I hope you change. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, um, I was just like, you know, I'm, I'm really happy with the fact that I'm asexual and I, I don't want to change. I'm really comfortable with the way that I am. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it was just like strange. Like, what do you mean? I hope you change. What? I hope you like, change. I was just like taken back by that. <laughs> like, I have no interest in experiencing sexual attraction. I've lived my life without it, and I'm happy living right. my life this way. And yeah. um, I know that um, a lot of people who are asexual do pursue relationships. Some asexual people do have sexual relationships. Um, the absence of sexual attraction doesn't mean that people aren't interested in the action of sex mm -hmm. uh, because libido is different, like sex drive is different to attraction. Mm. So um, some people have a high sex drive, but they just might not be able to experience sexual attraction, if that makes sense. It kind of doesn't. So, Can you talk a bit more about like how how does that work? Okay, so sex drive is um, like feeling horny, basically. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I was trying to use medical terms. Okay, it's okay. <laughs> so, regular okay. and medical so, is both okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, <laughs> sorry, I'm a med student. I'm trying to be professional. Okay, so <laughs> yes. sex drive is feeling horny. Mm -hmm and um like feeling wet and stuff 
uh, attraction, sexual attraction is looking at someone and thinking like, oh my God, that person is so attractive. I want to do sexual things with them. Mm -hmm. Got it. So, um, having an absence of sex drive is usually indicative of um, like an underlying medical condition and that can be treated. Mm. But sexual attraction is, um, is just looking at someone and having feelings of wanting to do sexual things with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in asexual people, that attraction is absent. So when you look at someone attractive, you don't feel the urge to do sexual things with that person. Mm-hmm. But you could feel um, like you could have a sex drive. Got it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Does that make more sense? It does. Very, very much so. Yeah. I think um, it was... I it was important for me to make sure that like folks who do listen to the conversation, they could, they could like say, okay, I'm a little bit this and this, and they can kind of pinpoint where they are on the spectrum. Um, I think that folks are like, sexuality is a spectrum in so many different ways. And it just, and people can find themselves in different places at different times of their life. And also, yeah. different times of the day it just depends and so um definitely yeah like um yeah. even with asexuality it's a spectrum in itself as well right um so in, within the spectrum of asexuality there's um allosexuals so that's non-asexual people and asexuals on the other end of the spectrum mm-hmm. so people who experience no sexual attraction and people who do experience sexual attraction and there's the area in the middle, and there's uh, a lot of different um, sub-identities, right. micro-labels, under the asexual umbrella. Um, so there, um, there's gray sexuals. So those are people who do experience sexual attraction, but very rarely. Mm-hmm. So an allosexual person um, might experience sexual attraction most of the time when seeing an attractive person, a gray sexual person might experience sexual attraction 2% of the time, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's um, um, like your sexual attraction is dimmed, basically. Mm -hmm. And it's actually really interesting if you look up all the different sub-identities. It's just cool to learn about. And each identity has its own little flag and everything. It's cute. Oh, that's precious. (laughs) I love flags. Okay. Um, great. So I think we talked about just about everything we were supposed to talk about today. Um, so as we close today, um, a couple things. One, is there something that we talked about or that we didn't talk about and you want to share? Like, I forgot to say this and I really want to say it because it's very important and or, um, I did say this once, but I want to say it again because it is so important. Or did you get everything off of your chest? <laughs> I think I think there's one more thing I'd like to add. Okay. Relating to asexuality. Yes. And um, like, you know how we said, um, you, you can't please anyone. Like when it comes to what women wear, 
Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with sexuality. So if a woman shows that she's interested in sex, she's labeled a slut, whore, whatever, mm-hmm. she's shamed for um, being biologically interested in sex. And, you know, these are just... Um, I mean, it's not something we can control. It's just... Um, Our sexual urges, basically. But women are still shamed for that. Mm -hmm. And um, so I thought, as an asexual, I wouldn't be shamed for being an asexual. But I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise. There's still people (laughs) who are mad at me for being asexual. And um, as if, like, you know, I can just, like, like, it's not an on and off switch that I just decided to turn on one day and, like, mm-hmm. erase my sexual attractive, like, how I experience sexual attraction to other people. It just, I just don't feel that way about people. Mm-hmm. So, um, I noticed that um, a lot of people, um, it, it just, um, it angers them because I feel like, it's not about um, what I'm doing or not doing. It's just people are just angry because they can't control mm-hmm. how I'm expressing myself, mm-hmm. how I'm feeling, how I'm acting. Mm-hmm. So um, especially like within the Muslim community, because we spoke about how um, like, in our upbringing, we're raised to believe in sex after marriage. And I do believe in that personally, but I don't, I obviously don't believe in shaming and judging people who don't believe in that, who do engage in sex before marriage, because at the end of the day, that's their choice, completely none of my business. Mm -hmm. So I don't understand why people are obsessed with what other people do in their sex lives. So I, I believe that because this is what we're taught, in the Muslim community, abstinence until marriage, that people would be, um, I guess, people from the Muslim community would be like more comfortable with mm. me being asexual. Mm. But they're not. <laughs> they just, <laughs> it's just like the reaction I got is just like pure hatred and anger. It's like, mm. how dare you say you're asexual? Um, mm. Someone called me a prostitute. Wow, that is spectacular. (laughs) (laughs) uh, So that's what I'm saying. It it doesn't make sense. It's just people are angry because they can't control women. It's Mm -hmm. not about what women are doing. Mm -hmm. So I'm not doing anything. I just said (laughs) I do not experience sexual attraction towards other people. (laughs) And people are like, oh, my God, you're not a real Muslim. Take off your hijab. Um someone was like don't fast for ramadan because you're not a real muslim Mm. and you're a prostitute Mm. and um like all these messages and whatever so it's just um it's really sad because (laughs) like it's sad because um it every time it surprises me how much energy people have to express hatred towards other people Mm. to try to take away people's um autonomy Mm -hmm. because um 
it doesn't make sense to be like, why are you upset that I don't experience sexual attraction? I think mm-hmm. they're just angry that I'm comfortable with the fact that the, with who I am when it's not the norm, basically. Fair. Yeah. So I find that very interesting. <laughs> it's fascinating. And I, I think also, like, so in where I grew up, people got married very early, um, and I'm in my 30s now. I'm very old. and um, You look so much younger. Oh I know. God. I didn't age. I don't know what happened. I was in school for 100 <laughs> years, and I just... <sighs> but I'm grown. And so, like, people... <laughs> so people are, like... Uh, when When I talk... So when I was... So I was a virgin until I was 31 and now like I'm just very not one, which is fine. And like when I was in my late 20s, people were like, we're still praying for you to find a husband. And I was like, that's cool. But like, I just, I'm living my life. I kind of Mm -hmm. am enjoying it. I'm a little depressed, but whatever. And then right at like 28 or 29, Everybody was just like, they just gave up. And they were like, whatever. And <laughs> you are a lost cause. But I, I, I still get some folks from where I grew up. And they are still like, we're praying for you that the Lord will bring to you a husband. And I was like, can, can, I, can I like request a prayer for something else? Like free vacations for life or like something else? Because I just don't feel, I just don't understand the point of getting married. I, I just don't. And so like very relatable very relatable because um even like when i tell people when i talk about my experiences with sexual abuse and how i'm how i ran away from home and i'm not in contact with my family and stuff people um a lot of people their first response is oh you know even though you, you don't have a family hopefully one day you'll be able to have your own family and um, I hope you get married to a nice man and like settle down with him and stuff. It's like never asking about, again, never addressing what I want, just always assuming that you can't be happy without being tied to a man, basically. (laughs) Or like, um, because I mean, yeah, like I'm not sure if it's the same in your community. If a man... Uh, is unmarried and he's much older it's not seen it's not treated the same way as if a woman an older woman is unmarried Mm -hmm. if an older woman is unmarried it's seen as a tragedy it's uh people pity her like Mm -hmm. it's so sad that um she doesn't have a husband or she you know she must she must have done something wrong. She's unwanted by men, so there's mm-hmm. something wrong with her. Mm-hmm. But when when men want to focus on their careers or their education and postpone marriage, it's it's not seen. It it might seem as a, it might be viewed as a problem, but it's not viewed, it's not treated as badly, as when women are unmarried. It's fair. It's like people look at me like I have cancer and I'm like, no, I'm just single. Like That's oh all. God. Like, I'm, I'm actually fine. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I'm not dead. And so like, it's, it's okay. <laughs> but I, um, my other thing when it comes to being an older single person, um, cause like 
in my journey, I was an old single virgin for a while. And now I'm just an old single person that is sexually active, which is very different um, when it comes to like interacting with people. Um, people that are my age, like I was, I was on Facebook a couple days ago and a friend that I grew up with, she's four years older than me. And she is now celebrating her 17th year of marriage. And I was like, Oh my God, I cannot imagine Wow. with the same person. Very impressive. I would never. (laughs) Yeah. And I was in her wedding and I'm so happy that that is her journey, but it is so not mine. And people who have been married 10 years, 15 years, have teenagers now. And here I am living my best life in my tiny palace. And um, they can't understand my life. I can't understand theirs. But it's almost like they want me to join their cesspool of sadness. And like, let's just be in misery together. <laughs> and I was like, but, but mm. I'm I'm fine over here. Like, my life is great. <laughs> Yes. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, happiness looks different to everyone, and that's that's the amazing thing with feminism is that um, feminism gives people the choice, the opportunity to make choices for themselves. So, um, if you don't, if you think abortions are morally wrong, don't have an abortion. But that doesn't mean you get to take away other people's rights to an abortion, exactly. or if you believe in sex after marriage that's fine wait until marriage just don't force other people to follow your lifestyle it's just um that's what i like about the idea of feminism it's just that um it allows people to make these decisions for themselves instead of pressuring women into this is what is expected from you so you must do this right it's so simple. Just let us let us choose what we want. We're not going to like blow up buildings. We're not going to like murder people. We just want to like go to the grocery store and be with who we want or not. And then we want to like wear what we want and not go to jail. Mm-hmm. Like it's fine. All of it is fine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um I don't want to keep you for much longer, but the Okay, my last question for folks who's um, who are listening to this and their stories align with yours, or maybe this is like their first time hearing a story similar to yours, um, what do you want to say to people who are listening? Like, do you have advice or like a way to reframe toxic thinking that's just like, oh, don't think that, that's not okay, based on your journey? I think um, I think one of the main messages I'd like to share during this podcast is um, if you've suffered from sexual abuse, it definitely does get better, and um, there's a whole life out there waiting for you after being sexually abused, where you get to make decisions for yourself and. Um, you get to regain control of your body. And um, I think um, because for a while I was completely hopeless and I didn't believe things would get better, but they do get better. Mm. And I would like to encourage everyone listening to this to try to support um, my activism in trying to improve services, safeguarding services in Kuwait, uh, particularly for survivors of abuse. 
um, because, you know, the, like I described within our culture, um, sexual abuse is prevalent because there's no education about it. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a lot of focus in our, there's a lot of emphasis in our culture about the family's reputation. So um, if a girl is sexually abused or raped, it's covered up. Because, oh, we have to protect the family reputation. No one's going to want to marry our daughter because um, she's not pure anymore. That's mm-hmm. the idea. Mm-hmm. Which is, again, linked to toxic ideas of virginity that we talked about and right. purity culture. Um, it shames the victim. So I, I hope that anyone who's listening to this who has experienced these things, I hope you know that it's definitely not your fault. And I hope you can also try to support um, our movements in Kuwait to try Mm -hmm. to bring justice to survivors of abuse. I mean, we're not even asking for a lot. We literally don't even have a legal shelter for abuse survivors. Like, we just want to shelter and people are opposing it. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I don't think that's a lot to ask for. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's definitely an important thing for me. Oh, and if you're interested in learning about asexuality, please do. We have a wonderful community. Um, we have the best memes. The asexual community has the best memes. Um, <laughs> there's so many, yeah, there's so many resources out there about asexuality. If you want to learn more, if you think you might be asexual and you didn't know the, the word existed until now, read up on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, um, yeah, thank you for having me. Oh, my gosh. I really enjoyed Where can we find your work on the internet? If you just search my name on Instagram, so uh, Ariam Marafi, I'll just, like, spell it out. Mm-hmm. A-R-Y-A-M-M-A-R-A-F-I. So that's my first and last name on Instagram. I have a Twitter page, but I don't really use it. And it's mostly just reposts from my Instagram. (laughs) So it's just, I usually just talk on Instagram. So if you guys check out my Instagram and support my work, I'd really, really appreciate that. And um, yeah, thank you for having me. Any more questions for me? I'm very happy to share. (laughs) Wonderful. It has been an absolute pleasure and honor to share your story. And thank you so much for being on my podcast. And I will be sure to um, put all of the links and things and on my Instagram um, and connect you with me and vice versa. So, yes, thank you so much. My goodness. Thank you, Aria Marafi, for sharing your story, your bravery, your tenacity, your vulnerability and um, your humor and your tenacity. Just so much. Yeah, I we are so grateful for the work that you do and for um the story that you carry inside of you. Yes. So, um folks who are listening, please support her work, follow her um her Instagram page. I have learned so much because um I live in a, another corner of the world. I'm from another corner of the world, and this is a corner of the world that I'm not familiar with. And so I um have gained a lot of knowledge and, and perspective in following her work. Also, um, find me on Instagram, find Ariam on Instagram, um, support us, send us love, chat with us. Um, we are human beings and we love conversations with folks. So, 
Um, and then also come share your host story with us on the pod. You are always welcome. Um, each host story um, carries a lot of bravery and vulnerability. And I am of the persuasion that when one person shares their story, it collectively frees so many people. And so um, we need individual stories in our personal journeys. So yes, come share your host story. Um, Until next time, you guys, be safe, be kind, be loving to your body, drink water, eat your vegetables, um, take naps, do not apologize for any and all of the above. Until next time, y'all. Bye-bye.